Tempe Strom, give me a name. <laughs> Hilda auf Klint. Welcome to Give Me a Name, where a guest presents me, Ben Kirschenbaum, with the dead historical figure they find interesting, and we discuss. Hilma Afklint's art has become increasingly popular over the past few years, and now that she's the subject of this podcast, we can say she's officially made it. We're talking about Hilda Afklint, who is a Swedish painter that didn't really come back into vogue, or into vogue, I shouldn't say back into vogue, until the 80s, and then especially over the past few years, she was widely unknown, and she's one of the most innovative artists of all time. Yeah, I know, it's amazing. So her show at the Guggenheim in 2018 was the most visited show in the Guggenheim ever. From going from nothing to that, it's extraordinary. And I mean, she has been passed away since 1944, so <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of extraordinary, right? And the first question is, why was she unknown? Why do we not know too much about her until somewhat recently? So from my understanding, the work that she did, the paintings she did, the ones that she were hiding, so to speak, were literally hidden. They were hidden in the basement of her nephew in Stockholm. And 20 years after her death, she was supposed to have these showcased in different galleries and so on. Didn't really happen. No one really understood the work. And then it took kind of a different turn from the 80s when she was showcasing at LACMA. And it kind of slowly got recognized until they did that show, Paintings for the Future, at the Guggenheim, 2018. So, And then everybody kind of went, who is this? It's extraordinary. And I think so many people felt this sense of connection to her paintings. They're really, really large. They're very colorful, a lot of them. And a lot of symbolism. Things that you haven't really seen anywhere else. And you're like, what? How are these from like... 1910 or you know that kind of era of time it was like such a long time ago yeah i mean she is considered now to be maybe the first abstract artist before it was names like kandinsky and mondrian and some of clint's abstract art was actually done before those guys I know. and so it's largely hidden and there were some moments where she would exhibit some of her abstract stuff but it seems like Towards the end of her life, she sort of concluded that the world was not, quote unquote, ready for her work, that they wouldn't really get it. And maybe part of the reason was because she was a woman. And that also adds to the fact that no one would really accept this very out there art. But now it seems like she's popular. <laughs> she's definitely on vogue now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. So with her like biomorphic paintings, which essentially the ones, so she was known for being a painter, like a really recognized painter for like landscapes and portrait. She's very technically skilled and she made money from that. So in Sweden, when she studied and became this artist on the surface, she was a very skilled and trained artist. And that was totally recognized being a woman in Stockholm at that era. But the paintings that she did that now she's famous for were always very selective circles of people, always like a few uh, specific teachers and leaders like Rudolf Steiner and people like that. They were kind of giving her advice and she was learning with them at different times of her life. And I mean, I can see why she hid them because I don't think that the world was ready for it. And I think the search of people who now loves, absolutely loves her work, it's just so clear that 
that recognition probably wouldn't have been so obvious earlier days like maybe they were call her witch or something like you know there's like it really wasn't that available the spiritual aspects that we now have and you mentioned Rudolf Steiner who is a important figure in her life yeah. so the thing to know about Af Klint is that she's an incredibly spiritual person and is from a pretty early age one thing i read said that the death of her younger sister really like helped turn her into toward a, the more spiritual side and steiner was a theosophist who then went on to found a new sort of doctrine called anthroposophy anthroposophy <laughs> anthroposophy maybe that's what it is anthroposophy yeah, yeah. i think so and all of these things are, then there's also the idea of spiritualism and all of these doctrines are sort of interconnected, different, but interconnected to each other. And Afklint gets involved in all three of these throughout. The only reason why I mention it is because when she's painting some of her now most famous paintings, she is claiming that it's like a spirit. She, she's being called on by a spirit. She's like trans channeling. Yeah, channeling. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like she becomes the, the spirit that she's communicating with. And through her uh, physical body, they create this work together. So essentially, she lets her body be taken over by a higher power, so to speak. And then they get to draw these incredible paintings. From my understanding, doing that, she had a very specific timeline. She will be like, okay, this five paintings will take this long. I don't know. Each painting will take uh, two weeks and they will take five hours a day. And she will know these things prior, which... I have never heard of an artist who knows that. Like, unless you're painting the same thing every single time, right. like, what artist knows it's going to take, like, five hours and seven days to make that painting? Right. It's extraordinary. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, usually it takes, like, 20 times longer than exactly. what you expect it to be. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, it's amazing. I love her paintings because of the composition. It is so dreamy. You feel like you're taking psychedelics, like you're on some journey beyond this reality and you look at those things and i just have a feeling like imagine you had one of her paintings in your house mm. so you could spend time with it my girlfriend and i were thinking after i was doing some research on this i didn't realize that she already liked it and we are thinking about getting a poster not an original i think that probably wouldn't work <laughs> you should have got that like 50 years ago yeah, yeah. when it cost nothing oh, 50 years ago it was nothing yeah <laughs> it cost nothing <laughs> they'd be like thank you for free <laughs> oh my god that would have been amazing yeah i think that's a really good idea there's so much symbolism in them that I think you only realize by spending time with it. Like it's like a living thing. And yeah. there are a lot of themes in there. One of them is that a lot of these philosophies that I just mentioned, first of all, I saw that like the word religion isn't shouldn't really be applied to these, or at least theosophy, for example, doesn't really consider itself a religion. It was founded in New York by a Russian immigrant named Helena Blavatsky. And just the general definition, it says here that it mixes all the religions of the world and was actually a way that a lot of Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism came into the West a little bit. And then Steiner kept Westernizing it a little bit more and applied it more to sort of human endeavor. So again, a lot of these theories are sort of related to each other, but not, you know, identical. It's kind of impossible to look at Afklin's work without also taking into account the spiritual side of her. And she had a group of friends that were called the five 
who would start meeting in the 1890s and they would have seances and sort of talk to spirits and things like that. And eventually a spirit comes to her to paint what I guess is her most famous series of paintings, the paintings for the temple. She basically thought that a spirit had told her that she was going to paint these paintings for a temple. She pictured that the temple would be a spiral type thing, which is kind of weird that it ended up in the Guggenheim so many years later. That wow, one was, I never thought about this. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. Of course. <laughs> That's incredible. But it seemed to be this almost like biblical thing of like she doesn't totally know what she's doing, but it's just following her feet and eventually leading her there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, the Guggenheim spiral. I didn't. Yeah, I knew cool. of the yeah. temple she wanted to put them yeah, in. Yeah, there yeah. was going to be a spiral. And as a designer and architect, I was like thinking about the DNA, how DNA looks like. And obviously it's a spiral. It's like this whole connection with rebirth and life extension. And that's so interesting. The Guggenheim, a spiral, of course. The spiral thing is weird. I saw also someone mention, because a lot of her works also kind of incorporated modern science. So if she's painting during the late 1800s, early 1900s, you have tons of cool stuff happening, x-rays and electromagnetism and eventually breaking open the atom and all this stuff. And she has a lot of works that have to do with like evolution and atoms and things like that. But the thing that was weird to me was the spirals because DNA doesn't, we don't know about the double helix for another like, you know, 50 years. So there are creepy things in there where it seems a little prophetic. I mean, this is what I love about it. Yeah. I saw one of her paintings in the new museum, maybe like seven years ago or something. And it was just a few works. I can't even remember which ones were there, but I just remember that I walked into the museum and it was a group show. And then I see these paintings and having a spiritual practice myself, I looked at them and I'm like, this is not a normal painting. There's something else about this. And, uh, and I took down her name. Like I remember, I was like, I need to look up this artist. And then as the years went by, the Guggenheim show happened. And I realized that I wasn't the only one who had seen, like at some point when you've seen like an original of her work, it stays with you. You can't forget about it. You're like, what is that? It's such a curious, mythical, yet not mythical, because you can see kind of like the, what you're saying, like this like scientific kind of science as well. It's so, it's so mesmerizing, to be honest. It's super mesmerizing. And I didn't go to that Guggenheim exhibit, which was just before the pandemic, to yeah, 2018, exactly. 2019. And as you said, not all of them are huge, but 10 of the paintings for the temple are ginormous. Huge, huge. Like, wow. You just feel so immersed in them when you're with them. And you can like look at all the little symbolism because obviously you can move closer and further away from the painting and as you do you have different experiences and all the colors have different symbolism she left something like over 120 notebooks when she died all with like channeled writings with information and she also did some automation which is essentially kind of letting your hand free like almost freestyle writing but just with painting which... I do this actually. Oh, you do that? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Is yeah. it? I... It's amazing. You can practice this yourself. It's really good. You don't have to be like, she's obviously extremely evolved with her channeling, I would say, with her, as she called them, her higher masters. But automatic writing or automatic painting, the best time to do it is right when you wake up in the morning. So when you wake up in the morning, you're still in like a theta brainwaves, which is like a brainwave where you're, in a spiritual context, your mind is still in the consciousness of the collective. 
And uh, the idea is that if you are in the consciousness of the collective, all ideas and all creations belongs to everyone and everyone has access to them. So when you then wake up, if you don't do anything, like don't check your phone, don't drink water, don't talk to your spouse, like nothing. You take a pen if you want to do the writing and you just write. You just write. And then, or if you want to paint, you paint, like whatever it is. But you just like, you have it next to your bedside table so that you don't have to move from this space that your mind is in. And then you can practice that. So you get better and better at it. It's, it's like the practice is not about doing it better. It's about letting go more so more information comes through you. I definitely have that feeling of right when you wake up, also right when you go to sleep too, because yeah. it's kind of one of those half asleep, half awake type things where exactly. you become a little more loopy and a little more creative. Uh-huh, um, exactly. The part of putting away the phone and, <laughs> and <laughs> that's the stuff that I think is the trickiest. <laughs> but I do try to do that with writing, not with painting, but with writing. Yeah. No, it's, it's super cool. And I didn't know she was doing that until recently when I understood where a lot of this was coming from. And I've been doing it for years. It was a thing that they asked me as a creative person. Like I had many different courses and teachers and they were like, hey, first it started with automatic writing. So I, I write a lot of journals and they're just for me. They, I don't share the, that information. So I started doing that uh, automatic writing and some of the stuff that came through, I was like, what? This is from my hand? I, <laughs> I couldn't believe some of the messages. It was extraordinary. And then with the drawing, it's trickier, I would say, in the mornings because it, it's a little bit more of a, like an exercise, <laughs> so yeah. to speak. The writing is easier. I also do voice notes. I will just like take my phone. If I, if I have my phone, I don't have pen and paper. I will record a voice note and I'll just speak out loud whatever comes to my mind at that moment. And usually you ask like two hours later, I will not remember what I said. And do you usually go back and then edit or just sort of review what was in there, good chunks that might be useful for the future? Yes, I do. I do. And I'm always surprised. I'm like, what? When was this from? Like, I, it's almost like a memory blank. Yeah. You know, it's, it's super interesting. And she was doing this automation thing before the Surrealists who decades later would claim that style as their or that approach as their own but again it's a lot of ways where she's doing stuff that other artistic movements get credit for but these these paintings for the temple were in the first decade of the 1900s and when you talk about kandinsky it's not really until the next decade so kandinsky and she actually had works at the same exhibit, but it was her landscapes and botanical painting, like the more typical things that she was showing out there, as opposed to showing these things that were so futuristic. Yeah, exactly. It's very interesting that she didn't decide to showcase those things, even just a few of her work, because they vary. I mean, some of them looks very, very abstract, and some of them looks less abstract. They're more like geometrical. And it's hard maybe to imagine that time frame that people would be so shocked by, say, geometrical paintings. But from my understanding, it really wasn't existing at all. And I think that's even more interesting. Like her work is very expansive and then it's very intimate and it has colors that I think are very unusual for that time period, even though, of course, every painter has access to the same primary colors they could have painted with that palette anyhow. But it's just she's using these like, I mean, you've the work like the pink ones and the like purpley tone ones, the massive ones. So interesting to understand how they were thinking at the time. There was a bigger group or spiritualism. More people were inclined to I would say not only believe, but also practice that type of spiritual 
connection to like higher masters and channeling. So it wasn't as unusual as we maybe think it was. I think the time period around the wars, like Second World War and so on, people stopped believing in these things and it went in more to like a Western science where spirit and channeling, like that's not part of everyone's accepted belief system. Yeah, I mean, it was incredibly common. A lot of the stuff actually happens not far from here in New York and New York State. There was this second great awakening in the 1800s, early 1800s. The most famous religion to come out of that is Mormonism which started in upstate New York. There's also this idea of more official spiritualism. There were these sisters, the Fox sisters, also in upstate New York in the 1840s who started experiencing spirits and stuff like that. And they started going around the country talking about their experiences and forming this new philosophy slash religion. Interesting, what I was reading about them is that for a year, one of the sisters then recanted everything that she said. She's like, actually, I was lying. And then she went back and she was like, no, 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 no. The spirit told me to say that I was lying and then went back to saying that it was true. Oh, um, well. <laughs> that's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> but in any case, any of these things, these sort of out there, esoteric, spiritual, I say out there from a modern perspective, but but absolutely like... They were very, very popular. I had an episode about Rasputin, who was a mystic healer in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Russia. And in the episode, I was saying, and and my guests were saying that this was not rare. This was a very, very common thing for Europeans and Americans to get involved with these sort of spiritual, mystic philosophies. I mean, if, if you want to compare to things like, say, uh, magic mushrooms, psilocybin, right? Right. So they were not illegal uh, for most of humanity. They became illegal for consumption recently, like as of 1960s or 70s. I can't remember exactly now. It depends on what country. And from my understanding, they were used widely uh, in different kind of more communal settings, like tribe settings, like in Siberia and other places like that. They still use them in communities. And they're seen as a way to connect to nature. And through nature, they see God in different ways. So it's for sure something that people were more inclined to have a wider perspective of at that time, because also um, I think they were living closer to nature. And I think every time you spend more time in nature, you start questioning things, the bigger picture of things a little bit more, and you start maybe feeling more compassion for, for the living existence that you are in. So... I'm not surprised that we, we kind of retracted from that a lot in the big cities. And they were obviously living in a closer connection to themselves and to nature in all of these periods that we're talking about right now. And she in particular. So she's born in 1862 in Kalberg Palace in Stockholm. And they take trips during the summer. And she's very much exposed to the outdoors and, and nature. What is important to note about her is that before she becomes more of an abstract artist, as we alluded to before, she is very classically trained. She goes to the academy in Stockholm. Sweden is more eager to have women participate in, in painting than most other countries in Europe at this time. And her father is in the Navy and is a mathematician. It's not the road you would think to go into sort of this like more out there art. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, in Sweden... We had this uh, equality, I would say, between men and women from a very 
early on. So she could have a very independent life doing her things, which was her paintings and her art, without needing some kind of uh, approval, uh, neither of society or her family, so which are beautiful. I, I haven't understood, actually, if she did have a romantic relationship. I was looking for a while and trying to search for it. It doesn't really seem like it. Yeah, uh, I didn't. I, 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 no one so far have, have talked about it, and I haven't read about it anywhere. Not so. addressed, right? Yeah, I mean, not addressed at all. No kids. Exactly. Um, so, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. I, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, so the five, these women, so this is kind of what what really caught my attention when I started learning about uh, yeah. Hilma after seeing her paintings. So the five is Hilma plus these four other women, as you mentioned before. And they have these seance sessions where they connect to spirits, which they call the higher masters. Some of the names of the higher masters I found out, and they hard to pronounce, but yeah, one of them is called Amaleil. <laughs> they, and I believe that first one is the one who tells her to make the paintings from the temple. Exactly, exactly. And then they had two other ones. One was Anada and Gregor. <laughs> Gregor's a very normal name. <laughs> it's very funny. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah higher, higher masters come all sorts of names. <laughs> all it's sorts like, of names. It's like horses. Some of them are way out there and some of them are like, you know, Greg. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Greg. <laughs> so from my understanding was that they got all these messages and they got like better and better at interpreting the messages and you can see that in there like uh, there's a lot of sketching that they did like just smaller hand sketches and stuff and they're super interesting because they, they have all this channeling in them so in her notebooks and diaries uh, with different words and explanations for example she uses the u the letter u mm. and the letter w and apparently there's writings in her journals over 40 different kind of interpretations that she has of each of these letters when they're in the different paintings so it just seems like it's a very expanded body of work, like how she's uh, interpreting also what she's doing, because it seems that during the period she's doing these paintings of the temple, she doesn't know herself what she's doing. She's just following the higher master, essentially. Mm. And we should also say that some of those other painters we were talking about, Kandinsky, Mondrian, they're also in the same circle of spiritualism, theosophy. It's, again, it's very, very common, particularly with this particular form of art. The other thing that's, I thought, a little bit spooky is that Mondrian, Kandinsky, and she all die in 1944. I know, I saw that, and yeah. I was like, what's going on here? Yeah, what no, that one was creepy. That's very creepy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just to get a little bit to your connection with her, the obvious one is both from Sweden. Yes. Is that part of the reason why you feel a, a certain kinship with her? You know, it's interesting because her name, when I first saw it, after seeing the paintings, it could also be German, that her name could also be German. So I thought originally, without uh, diving too deep into her biography, that she was German. And then I started reading about her and I was like, oh, wow, she's actually Swedish. She's from Stockholm. I'm from a town that's about one and a half hours south of Stockholm but also from the countryside of Sweden, like that's where I spent most of my upbringing. And in Sweden, I would say that they were very successful with the witch hunts in the 13th century, because we are the most secluded country in the world, like we don't have religion, even though they were very successful with essentially killing our belief in paganism, which is kind of what she's touching on is a little bit towards paganism, which is nature and kind of this uh, biomorphic geometrical which is all to do with like the DNA and the atoms and 
the evolution of plants and, and animals and so on. So what's very interesting is that her being a Swedish woman painting these kind of paintings in an area where I have never heard about people in Sweden being very interested in any theology or spiritualism. Everybody's very much like, what you see is what you get. Mm. So then hearing this and seeing this, I was incredibly impressed because it made me really happy. I was like, why? I'm not the only Swedish person <laughs> <laughs> who believes in these things and yeah. who's like evolved in kind of just um, wanting to know more about it, which is super cool, I think, with her. Um, and it's true that theosophy and then afterwards anthroposophy, again, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm butchering <laughs> the pronunciation of that one. It's a lot of letters. I think part of the reason why they don't like being considered a religion is because they want to be seen as very much in conjunction with science. Yeah. Um, anthroposophy in particular, Steiner was starting schools and trying to create educational systems as well to apply in particular to improving the human search for knowledge, just sort of in a more large level way. Yeah, I feel like his interpretation and the way he wanted to go about it was very Eastern in the sense that it was holistic. You look at the mind, body and the soul as one unit and then how do you move with that unit together where each of the parts are impacted by the decisions of the others. We in the Western world, and this is maybe a, a comparison to why the spiritualism disappeared a bit in the Western world was because we started having the pharmaceutical companies push very hard on their prescriptions of different things. And for that to work, they needed to patent the medicine that they were doing. So if you can't do that with something, for example, a herb or something similar that's from nature, you can't make money from it in the same way. So from my understanding, from the early 19th century, um, like there was a huge amount of, they call them quackers, but actually this is, this is a conversation to have, like who, what side are you viewing this from, right? So they were saying there's all these people who were kind of trying to treat people, but they didn't have a clue what they were doing. That is just a perspective, I guess, because if they wanted to use natural herbs and they were working in different ways, then yeah, anyhow, the point was, I think that really pushed away the spiritual aspect because people started relying on man-made procedure of healing themselves. And there was a lot of money made in that context, which also made it more difficult to argue around. So you would think that people like Hilma would maybe have some sort of natural herbs or like, like certain things that would maybe expand her mind, as, as people say? Actually, not with her, but I understood from going a little bit deeper research around the era that she was living and painting and this kind of zeitgeist of, of spiritualism in, in Europe and the United States that a lot of people were using different like cybacillins and psychedelics in different forms. Like cybacillin from mushrooms, for example, has been widely available in nature forever. Like there's that's part of a lot of the societies and their practices. So if you take a large dose of cybacillin, you will see a lot of the things you see in Hilda's paintings, right. you know? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're right. I mean, this is not dating back to the 1800s. This is dating back to thousands of years. Exactly. It's a very nice way to, I guess, see beyond the surface. From my understanding, psychedelics were used a lot as antidepressants and things like that because all suddenly your purpose of life and your bigger picture of life was expanded beyond the reality you were in. So say you had a challenging time, you could then be like, okay, I have hope 
I have hope for the future because these emotions and feelings and so on, they'll pass and I will overcome them. So it was used as a natural antidepressant. And I mean, now we're coming back to this science, which is what's so interesting. We're kind of doing this circle and it's returning because now people are getting a lot more acceptance in the communities to use different natural substances to support people's well-being. And going back a little bit to your connection with her, could you tell me a little bit about what you do in the arts? Yes. So I work as an architect and designer, and I also create very immersive experiences. I'm not a painter per se. Like I like to paint, but it's not a thing that I, that I do for a living. And I do have a very deep spiritual practice, which happened over time of just being curious. I don't come from a background or a family that has any connection or knowledge around this at all. And it wasn't until I started engaged with, I would say, cybercillin a little bit that I started understanding that some of these deeper emotions and, and philosophical thoughts that I had had as a teenager, they had a bigger picture connection. And that really sparked something in me. And I, I've been on the journey for a good 15 years, trying things out here and there, you know, that's many of these things that I have not not tried because I, yeah, I'm very curious. I mean, this is like, I mean, every episode <laughs> is interesting in terms of the connection that the guest has with the topic, but this feels like a very past life type thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's, what's amazing, what I see like with all these uh, different abstract paintings and artists and so on, it is that connection to to life before and life after that the fact that you would reincarnate so like you had previous lives and you will have future lives and how we could be guided by something um, I think everybody's guided but I don't think they're aware of it because there's different levels of guidance like you know sometimes you will walk out of your apartment and you just be like today I'm going to take a different route to work and you just do it you don't know why that is usually people's would call it intuition or like your gut feelings or whatever. That's like a very small like breadcrumb version of what channeling would be. When you learn to channel, you learn to put these like puzzle pieces together. It is usually, I mean, maybe Hilma has that ability, but most people don't have the ability of like trans channeling, which is essentially when the spirit really comes in and it's almost like they're with you in person in that moment. And it's like you can speak to them. You can have like a Q&A with them. It's really that intense, I would say. But that's not so common. But everyday people, they have these experiences where they're like following their intuition. And sometimes when they don't follow their intuition, then things happen that are not great. And then when they sit back and reflect and they're like, no, I shouldn't have done that thing. Or I felt that wasn't right. You know, and they'll have these like second thoughts listen to it you know that's all I can say because it's there for a reason and as you said when it comes to art it's like why not right I mean you could always edit afterwards why not let your mind go where it needs to go and this was happening in literature this was happening in art all at sort of around the same time and you get this fascinating fascinating period in history where everything seems to be a little bit more free in the artistic process yeah, I mean, they went from painting landscape pictures, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, to like some abstract art that it, that nobody could understand in the beginning, but it was blowing people's minds. Like, what makes, is that? Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, well, first of all, because photography is coming into play. So why are you painting a sunset when I could just take a photo of it? But then also the idea of science showing that there are things we can't see with the naked eye, electromagnetic waves, atoms and things like that. 
So it makes sense that those sorts of discoveries would happen around the same time that people like Hilma and, and Kandinsky would start being like, well, anything is quote-unquote real, just make these different objects. And the spirals did turn out to look a lot like DNA. You know, it, it is real. We haven't gotten too much into her actual biography. One pivotal moment in her life is after she is told by the masters to paint the paintings for the temple, she meets in 1908 with Steiner and shows him some of her work. And apparently Steiner was not into it and said that like maybe people in 50 years will get this thing, but he was very critical of it. And she doesn't paint for four years after that. And I saw that it was kind of debated whether it was because of that interaction or for some other reason, but that's like sort of one of the pivotal moments in her career. Yeah, that's very interesting. I really wonder what went on in that meeting. I also understood that those years she was also looking after her mother, right? Yeah, her, her mother blind got sick. mother. Yeah, 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 got sick. So she kind of went and did other things to support, to support her family. But yeah, I wonder what happened there. Because, I mean, she has such a strong connection to spirit. And if she was now channeling these things, like that doesn't go away. You, you know, you, you either you, you're connected to it or you're not. So. And I think he also didn't love the idea that she was a medium as opposed to in some way looking back and getting the message, but then also reflecting on the message. It seems like Steiner was uncomfortable with the idea of her being just like totally this vessel. Exactly. And I mean, I don't know how he was connecting to the spiritual world if he was more about science, but then teaching science in a more holistic approach, because that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the channeling and spiritual connections at all. You know, you can have a holistic approach, understanding that things are interconnected, but that doesn't mean that you believe that you could have a, um, like a Sion session with uh, higher masters. You right. know, they're completely different things. And for those seances, by the way, she was using instruments, different devices in order to interact with spirits. At first, she was more interacting with ghosts and more like people who have died. But then it became more, as you said, these these masters who had truths that, that knew the ultimate truth. I was thinking about the fact that you were talking about her younger sister when she died. That uh, she was eight, Hilma was 18 and her younger sister was 10, I think. So I had a friend who had a similar situation. She had someone pass away that was close to her. And she was spiritually inclined prior. But as this passing happened that spirit came to her and like guided her to become extraordinary at channeling because it was kind of that doorway. She was very ambitious in terms of wanting to connect with that spirit. So I wonder if that death really triggered Hilma to say, okay, I, I still want to talk to my sister or having some kind of interaction with her sister after she passed that then made her go, wow, this is something extraordinary and I want to explore this. I don't know, that just feels like a possibility. And yeah, they use this machine actually that I, uh, that it's called a, a psychograph. It essentially looks like a box that has a, some kind of reading tools. Wait, <laughs> do you want to describe that? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're like... The, Taking a look at it, I, it just has like little devices inside. I mean, it almost, it looks just from the photo, almost like a vinyl record player, which obviously it's not what it is, but it's like a box with different 
instruments inside. And it has a pendant which is hanging, which that pendant is usually made from crystal, rose quartz crystal or something like this. And what you can do with that is you can work with that. It's, a, it's an instrument to connect to. Usually it's your higher self, but who knows what she was connecting to. I have one of them and the way I would use it is that I would ask first if I was allowed to ask questions. So I would hold my pendant on a chain. I don't have like a mm. box machine like this. I have a pendant on a chain. And this is very common in, this, in the like more spiritually inclined communities. And, and you had this before knowing about Hilma. Yes. I maybe had it for like six years. Oh, okay. So this is totally independent. Totally independent. Yeah. And what you can do with that is you can ask questions and it will move. So I didn't know of this existence before I ended up in a course, like a one-day course where they were teaching this. And I still at this moment, I entered the course and I have no idea what it is. I just knew I had to be there. I, I trust my intuition. So sometimes I'll sign up for like courses or meet people that I, I can't fully understand why I'm there, but I have such trust. And usually it evolves into something I could never imagine. And it's amazing. So I'm sitting at this women's, this woman who is an extraordinary healer and she channels and she's very educated and she's teaching this one day course. This is in Australia uh, back in the day, like five or six years ago or more maybe. Everybody has a pendant and with this pendant you can ask questions, but you need to ask first. So you're asking your higher self, you need to ask first if you're allowed to. So you, you say something like, can I, may I ask a question? You hold the pendant, you don't move your hand and to my surprise, not having done this ever in my life before and also never met a person who did this, the pendant starts moving and you just hold your fingers completely still and it moves and you ask it like, show me a yes and it will move in one direction. Oh. And then you ask, show me a no and move in another direction. And then you can ask, show me a maybe. So I'm sitting there, I think I'm open-minded and the pendant starts moving like crazy. Like it moved more than for anyone else in the group. And I mean, I know I'm holding my hand still. I'm like putting it on the table, like really holding it still. And it's swinging hugely. And I'm like, what's going on here? I got scared because I couldn't understand like what is happening. I understood that it's a very common tool for anyone to like ask questions, but anything. Are there uh, rules about the question? Like does it's it essentially our teacher who's a very like, I would say, clean spiritual teacher no black magic everything's about evolution for your soul okay you can't ask for other people's uh, like you can't ask for say like oh i want to ask for ben's question that he has right, right, right. unless you're like with me and you'd be like i give you permission to yeah. ask this uh, so i will only ever ask questions for on myself should i and then i will do some questions that i want to ask and actually just to make sure that nothing is done by my subconscious I usually make little notes so I will write like say an example I want to take a trip and there's three different places I want to go to but I don't know which one I should go so I'll like write a note and on a piece of paper and I will fold it together and I'll write all of them and I'll lay them out on the table I'll go over with the pendant and I will say which of these should I go to so the first one I'll be like should it be this place and then it will say yes or no and then or it will say maybe so sometimes it happened to me that I've done that before a trip to decide and I'll ask other specifics like should I go with this person or should I go these dates or and I will give num like multiple options and see what it says. It's extraordinary. I think I would go crazy. The problem is because I'm indecisive about like every little decision. I mean, every meal I would, I would have to use it. 
And it's amazing because you're like, wow, okay, this is cool. I mean, I don't live by this all the time, but I just like the idea that there is ways to communicate with what I believe is like a different version of me. And that version of me is usually something that has bigger perspective. Like they know what is to come a little bit bigger than what I know in my little human perspective on earth in this very moment so yeah and to be a little humble and uh, you know allow something else to come in exactly yeah and Hilma would use well she used certain devices as we said in order to conduct the seances with the five and she maybe after that meeting with Steiner didn't do as much of the automation or as much of the exact medium work, but obviously continued to be an incredibly spiritual person and joined his societies and things like that throughout her life. She did show some of her work, abstract work, at certain conventions and things like that. But for the most part, she kept the stuff now we now appreciate a secret. She gave most of her work, more than a thousand works and over 125 notebooks to her nephew and said, don't release it for 20 years, which is, I mean, it's a crazy story. It's crazy, right? Uh, she died in 1944 from a, actually an automobile accident, a uh, traffic accident. Yeah, I was understanding that too. I thought that was interesting. And then in the connection to, to the other abstract artists, like they're all passing away in 1944. It's very interesting. I, you know, I saw this documentary with her nephew that got the paintings and being very Swedish, <laughs> he describes this as a very big inconvenience. He was like, why is she giving me all these paintings? I don't have places for them. But what are these things? <laughs> and I think like, wow, she gave him like one of the biggest gifts anyone could ever receive. It's extraordinary. And then all well, suddenly he's just being super annoyed with it. Right. And, and has to keep these paintings. So first he gets the paintings, but they can't do anything with them. He has, just has to keep them. And Swedish people don't usually live in big houses. I mean, it's closer. If you live in Stockholm, it's like closer to the setup of New York in the sense that you may not just have all this extra space for like 120 paintings. Right. <laughs> so it's a big problem if you need to store them somewhere. Good. It sounds know? like very practical. I mean, it's a very practical. And as you were, I feel like it's related to what you were saying before, that it's sort of no... We don't have time for this kind of, kind of exactly. thing. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he for sure didn't understand the, the depth of her painting. Yeah, I'm sure the money made it a little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure when... She, yeah. I don't know what he got in terms of finances until they got famous, though. Right, right, yeah, right. So it took quite a long time. And I don't know if there was some agreement also about like what he could do with them and so on during that time period. But it was a long time period that he couldn't do anything with them. He was just sitting there on essentially a gold mine and couldn't do anything with that. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, it's so nice to meet you. And thank you for teaching me about uh, Hilma of Clint, who is every day becoming a more household name. Yeah, it's amazing to talk about her like this. And I hope you will get a nice poster or picture from her. I think I'm going to do the spiral one. Yeah, I think uh, that would be for amazing. For some reason, that's the one that got me. I like the swans too. But I love the swans. Yeah. And there's one that looks like an atom always. It's very reductive yeah. in the painting. It's beautiful. I will put the links underneath of certain paintings to check out and hopefully take a look at those as you listen so that uh, you know this experience is not just audio but also visual. Thank you for having me, Ben. Mm -hmm.